This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Good evening to you both. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> have, we, have we enjoyed our, our long weekend? Rather. I have. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy how the Easter long weekend is very much kind of... A lot of people use it for family time, so I, I want to quickly share an anecdote about my family. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you want to hear this? It's, it's a, well, remember, you, you, I got a real good burn last week when you referred to me as Thomas <laughs> Coldwell. We, we all remember I thought that. You'd forgotten. Well, I'm going to let you know that you're not the first to do that kind of thing to me. Um, uh, do you remember? We, do you remember we reviewed Sing Street last yes, year? Yes, yes. Which you and I, Emma, I think both really loved. We did. Yes. This, this is the film set in the '80s with the awkward kid who starts a sort of new romantic band. Yeah. Well, my sister finally watched it, and she texted me to say. You obviously love this film, I'm assuming. And I said, yes, exactly. <laughs> and she said, don't lie, you want to be the kid in this film, don't you? And I responded with something like, yes, of course I do, except for the extreme poverty and Catholic dogma stuff. Exactly. <laughs> this is what she texted back. He totally reminded me of you, but then he got the girl and got too cool. Oh, oh dear, that's terrible. Burnt from all sides. But never, you got, you got the girl, forget. Thomas. You got the girl. Eventually, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. (laughs) On tonight's show, actually, Cerise, as you identified on social media earlier today, we'll be looking at three films that are all in their own ways about monsters. We're going to take a look at the new... Did I did I quote you right? Yeah, more or less. That was it, kind of the link. That was the link. There be monsters. There be I monsters. hashtagged knowing. <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent link. We're going to look at the new Olivier Assassin's film, Personal Shopper, which is a sort of ghost story. It stars Kristen Stewart. We'll also be discussing Denial, a based-on-a-true-story film about the time Holocaust denier David Irving took one of his many critics to court. But first we're going to start with Colossal. This is the second English-language feature film by Spanish director Nacho Vigalondo, whose previous films are Open Windows, Extraterrestrial and Time Crimes. We should also pause at this moment and say regular Plato's Cave host Alexandra Helen Nicholas, who couldn't be with us tonight, adores this guy we, beyond belief. Beyond that, we, I noted as the closing credits rolled that she has a thank you. Does she? Our she, Alex. Yeah. Our Alex. I have heard that they, or we should let Alex tell this story, but I believe she was actually, her opinion on aspects of this film was asked by the director. <gasps> they're, they're very good friends on Twitter. I didn't know that. Yes. There uh, we go. And that's, oh, they're, pack, they're a like the be- <laughs> yeah, pack a bomb. Pack a bomb for, for oh, Alex. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and thus, this is why we stay and watch the credits roll, just so we hope to see our mate's name there. <laughs> Well, yes, well, my name was in a film I saw the other day, actually. Moving thank right you. So there we go, yeah. <laughs> mine I'm wasn't. sorry, I, I don't know why I threw that in. That was, that was so petty. <laughs> Colossal stands at stars, rather. Colossal stars Anne Hathaway as Gloria, a woman who has somewhat hit rock bottom. Her boyfriend has kicked her out. She frequently has blackouts from drinking too much and she has returned broke to her hometown to figure things out. There she's reacquainted with Oscar, played by Jason Sudeikis, an old friend from high school. In the meantime, a giant monster has been appearing in South Korea and terrorising the inhabitants of Seoul. Gloria soon realises that there is a connection between her and this monster. 
Emma, you are the monster movies person <laughs> who we always throw to first when we're uh, discussing monster films. Yes, yes. Because you literally wrote the book on it. I, I, uh, well, the book? I think John Landis would have something to say about that. But anyway, <laughs> I wrote a, a you, book. You literally wrote a book on monster films. <laughs> I wrote my book before John Landis wrote his book, so he possibly copied off me. No, I won't say that. No, that's <laughs> terrible. No, he didn't. He didn't copy off me. But... Um, it's interesting to call this uh, a monster film because it is a monster film, but what I really loved about it is in some ways the monsters, which are big monsters, are secondary to everything that goes on. And this is what's so delightful about um, this film. It's quite a, a kooky, uh, quirky setup. So we have uh, this seemingly dis- this disconnect between large kaiju monsters attacking South Korea or Seoul specifically and um, a a rather small domestic story going on in America about this woman who has, um, as Thomas said, these blackouts. I felt like she had narcolepsy at the start because she seemed to be falling asleep all the time Um, and is really not in a good state and goes back to her hometown to try and get herself back together again. So how these two are connected, uh, well, that's what comes out in the story. Uh, And it is a a long bow to draw. It's quite crazy. Um, But what I felt about this film was that it reminded me of those sort of kooky setups that you have with something like, uh, you know, Be Kind Rewind or Hot Tub Time Machine. But whereas those films and usually with that type of setup, those films put the comedy up front and central and they're very frat boy humour, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't mind some frat boy humour occasionally. This um, changes the the, the, the way of... Uh, the, changes the, the view of the film. So it's not so much about the comedy. The comedy is there, but it is more about the central themes that come out in the film. And this is a really, really high concept film. There is so much going on um, and so much that I kind of don't want to say because it's lovely in the revelation of there's particularly one character arc that goes on in the film that I didn't really expect to see and that really informs the film thematically. You guys will know what I mean. Mm, mm. I don't want to say it because I really want people to experience this in it in itself. Um, it is a really lovely, strong female film as well um, in terms of um, her not being a superhero as such but her being very fragile but um, little things that people do having big big ramifications, which is, you know, echoed in the monster stuff. This is all themes that, look, I'm, I'm throwing them out there and they're hinging on nothing, so I won't go on too far about it. Um, but that, it, this is what makes this a really special little film. I really loved it, I have to say. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this, but I, um, I'm a bit curious about a few things. One is that uh, all of the monster action takes place in Seoul very specifically when these sort of monsters that appear there are a little more in my mind, at least associated very specifically with Japan and Japanese monster film. Um, And I'm wondering if it really is just coming down to something as simple as a pun and the idea of soul being... uh, There's a battle for someone's soul or, or... 
at play here. And I, I really wonder if that's why they chose South Korea over, say, situating this in Tokyo. I'm so used to seeing Tokyo get stomped. <laughs> that <laughs> it was very peculiar that all of this was situated, all of the stomping action and all of the peril for people was um, short of this domestic story where there's peril in terms there of... There have yeah. been big monsters, though, in Seoul. There may have been, but... Uh, um, no, no, as in the host. The host. Bong oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was a big monster film. Yeah. And but particularly spectacular. But it, yeah, yeah, I see what you're yeah. saying. It's a yeah. very Japanese tradition. Yes. It, it is a yeah. very Japanese tradition. And so to situate this in South Korea, is it utterly arbitrary or is it because there was some co-production angle there mm. they could exploit or is it simply to pun on that word soul, I do wonder. <laughs> because really, it's just it seems so specific. And then it's either desperately arbitrary or convenient through, say, a co-production scheme or something whereby, yes, screens, uh, shoot some of the footage and, and use our city of soul and, you know, we'll give you some... Do you think it, it might have been a little bit of a, uh, I think there was an illegal, uh, an attempt to uh, take this film to court at one stage because I of the bel- Godzilla references. So maybe that's kind of early, like to try and divert Apparently in the early days when they were pitching the project. Yeah. So when they pitched the project, they were using some of the Godzilla iconography. Oh, and, okay. and that's what got them into trouble. Um, I don't know the full details behind that, so maybe maybe that's part of the, the deal. Yeah, it might it might have been just to kind of which try in my and mind throw sounds like a non-issue. Off. I mean, when when you pitch films, you often draw upon other film works to say this is the kind of thing we're going to be doing. So oh, especially now, I yeah. mean, so much cinema is riffing on what the has copyright gone in holders the past. of Godzilla though are pretty ferocious. They they, they do yeah. protect that quite fiercely, as is their right. In, in as much as that. Obviously, the big guy there's going to wind up in the next King Kong uh, franchise film. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's an awful yeah. lot of Hollywood taking on that quite specifically Japanese monster iconography lately, and it's all a little peculiar. I'm not sure how I sit with that exactly, and um, I don't know if this idea of just displacing that to another uh, Asian mega metropolis is is enough to satisfy my, um, or, or just at least to put my compunction to one side altogether. Oh. Nonetheless, I, I really in, did enjoy this film and I did I, the character arc you alluded to earlier, Emma, which I'm not going to, to spoil for anyone, it was surprising and dramatic and, and that was quite well explained away in the course of the film with a reveal or two. And um, uh, so, yeah, my reservations... Uh, I don't know if they're minor exactly, but they're, they are mm. to do with this peculiar internationalism that I don't know if it really quite works. But nonetheless, the film's a hell of a lot of fun and something gets stomped and I like seeing things get stomped. <laughs> <laughs> this is only the second film I've seen by this, this director. Um, I watched Open Windows when we talked about a, 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 the similarly themed Unfriended, which came out a couple of years ago, American sort of slasher film. And I wasn't impressed with Open Windows at all. That That's the first... Well, like, conceptually, I really liked it, but um, I, I had issues with, with a lot of the, uh, the acting and the execution, ultimately, of some of the ideas. So I was a bit cynical going into this, but um, I, I am now dying to see everything this director has ever done because this film impressed me enormous, enormously. Oh, OK. Um, you're, like, you're like me, then. Yeah, I, I like this an awful lot. And there's a, there's a few things in particular. I love a film that has an outlandish scenario that it doesn't then spend half the film explaining with backstory. Yes. It's just taken as a given. There is a link between her and this monster, so we're going to focus on character development and how that pans out rather than long, boring kind of Marvel film-type origin stories explaining how we got to this point. I mean, they, they kind of do in one flashback sequence, but it's not the focus. It's more about how they execute this idea. And... Um, 
the other thing I did love is yeah this character arc which which takes the film into some very interesting terrain. I mean this is this film is two things. It's it, it is a monster movie. It's also a very much a lo-fi rom-com, and we've seen an awful lot of these kind of kind of cute indie rom-coms often with people returning to hometowns and getting back in touch with more eccentric kind of homespun values and <laughs> and they're kind of cute and they drink craft beer and all that sort of thing and this film feels like it's going down that route and it it really subverts that and does something very interesting it does something very topical in terms of the way it portrays the d- dynamics of a relationship that develops in this film um yeah it you know it, it's it's really really impressive the way they subvert all expectation and do something far more interesting and the way the film kind of panned out and the way it ended i my heart was sort of soaring i sort of was really wanting to stand up and cheer and applaud at the end of this film i loved how it worked through the issues and ultimately resolved i was enormously impressed and i've long been team Anne hathaway i I don't know why she's one of these performers who has to always reprove herself time and time again. You know, there's just a handful of actors who people never seem to give (laughs) um, the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, I think this is the best thing she's done since Rachel getting married, which is another character where she plays somebody struggling with an addictive personality. Yeah. Um, And hearing her interviewed recently, I mean, she's got some of this in her own background. and Not not true dramatically, but, you know, and she spoke quite openly in this interview, so I'm not, you know. I believe she was was actually behind uh, Bringing this project to life as well. I mean, uh, in, in terms of uh, it could have been Nacho Vigalondo making it in Spain, raising it with his own money, but she was the one that managed to bring it into the the Hollywood system and, you know, open it up to an English language audience. Uh, I believe, mm. yeah, no, that, that's, that does sound right. And, and she really advocates for this film. And yeah, yeah. it's I love a film with a kind of silly, wacky kind of premise that the, the the outcomes of that premise are explored and that is what gives the film its its depth. Yeah, I felt felt it naturally brought together those two types of films that you you mentioned the monster movie with um the rom-com and uh, created its own beast without um, feeling forced or contrite or anything like that. It really feels like its own film. Um, it's a comfortable, it's a comfortable film. It's a comfortable watch. And like, like you said, it makes you excited at the end to see something like that. And yeah, I think it benefits yeah. from somehow retaining something of an indie sensibility. So again, mm. times like you did suggest that the, there's been a certain slew of films recently where city folk wind up in slightly eccentric country, uh, uh, con- more rustic locations, getting back in touch with somewhere they escaped from and learning to uh, reevaluate their values and perhaps realise they hadn't come from somewhere so awful. And this film then situates that with a, a nicely cast, indie cast of supporting characters. You've got one big star, Anne Hathaway, and you know, a monster. Um, <laughs> uh, but also this, this lovely, um, this, uh, was it Tim Blake Nelson? I can't even remember the last yeah, time I saw him Tim in Blake something. Nel- I didn't yeah. even recognise him. And again, yeah. I, I would argue that there are certain expectations about the kind of character he's going to be when you introduce mm. to him yep. that, that don't go that, that way. I think th- this film surprises and it does some really inventive casting. Yeah, yeah it, it does. does. And the, the, male, the male characters with her... With her not being um, a particularly sassy chick because she's not the Devil Wears Prada Anne Hathaway hmm. or anything like that, um, it's 
it, it, she is the, definitely the strongest, although we, regardless of her weaknesses, she ends up being the strongest character. And it's really, it's beautifully written and it's written and directed by a man. And that's really, you know, it's lovely to see that and to see that come out in the in the film. Yeah, it's very knowingly directed by this guy. Mm. He understands mm. um, a certain type of toxic relationship. Yeah. Because that is, that is what, it, yeah, I'm trying to speak genuinely, but, but definitely a particular type of toxic relationship is explored in this film with a lot of integrity. Or even mm. multiple types yeah yeah, yeah there's, mm. there's more than one isn't there's it? quite a few dynamics at play in the yeah. film yeah. And, and they're teased out um and i realized one english twit i realized how do <laughs> not the last english twit for tonight's show <laughs> from down to down to navi um I realise now to us talking about it how difficult it is to talk about this film without giving it away. I think it's... Um, well, I was almost you know, wondering, do we mention the fact there's this monster in it? But it's so... It's in all the publicity. Yes, yes, Because the is. monster yeah, doesn't... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, it, it's yeah, more actually, finding It starts out, with the monster. It, it takes yeah. about 20 or 30 minutes till we get the connection. But, um, yeah. but it is there pretty up front in all the marketing quite explicitly so yes yes exactly and i think it's worthwhile allowing people to have that reveal um revealed to them yeah. <laughs> rather than than for us to stomp on it stomp see i brought that in i see what you did <laughs> well let's stop talking about colossal right now so people can go and discover it for themselves you're listening to plato's cave here in three triple r you are listening to a podcast from community radio three triple r fm in melbourne australia you're listening to Plato's Cave. We're going to talk about personal shopper in just a moment. But first, we want to acknowledge uh, the passing of one of the great cinematographers of our era, or the previous era for that matter, Cerise. Yeah, well, a quick shout-out to the now-late Michael Boylehouse, um, a renowned c- cinematographer who worked with many greats, but in particular is known for his work with Rainer Werner Fassbinder, um, including such extraordinary films as The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, where he made an awful lot of um, managed to milk a single location throughout the whole film for extraordinary drama and stunning mise-en-scene uh, through other very quirky Fassbinder films like Satan's Brew uh, The World on a Wire which only re-emerged a few years ago that wonderful sci-fi that was glorious wasn't it <laughs> yeah it, it yes. was and, and then later much bigger budget films uh, comparatively for Fassbinder like Lily Marlene before winding up working a lot with Martin Scorsese from After Hours onwards through to Colour of Money Last Temptation of Christ and Goodfellas Three times nominated for an Oscar uh, for Gangs of New York with Marty, but also for the Fabulous Baker Boys and Broadcast News, never won. I love Fabulous oh. Baker Boys. That's one of my... I haven't watched that for years. And I think we all just fessed up to a soft spot for Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's we Dracula, did. didn't we? we Even did. if it is a bit of a mouthful. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, he, he was one of the greats. Yeah. And he, um, the, those filmmakers' films would have been much the poorer, in fact, possibly unimaginable if it weren't for their collaboration with this wonderful German cinematographer. So just a quick hats off. Um, well, thanks for the films, Michael. That long take in Goodfellas alone, I mean, that's yeah. one of the most famous shots now mm. in film history. That you know the, the the shot through the kitchen and yeah. then into the restaurant. That extraordinary steadicam long take. I mean, he did that. That has informed so many filmmakers since. So yeah, yeah, a worthy tribute. Thank you, Cerise. You're listening to Plato's Cave. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Personal Shopper is the second collaboration between the American actor Kristen Stewart and the French filmmaker Olivier Assassus. After Assassus first cast her in his 2014 film, I'm saying Assassus, it's Assayas. <laughs> After Sayas first cast her in his 2014 film Clouds of Sils Maria. 
In Personal Shopper, Stuart plays Maureen, a woman who works as a personal shopper for a wealthy celebrity, travelling around Europe to select the highest of high-end fashion items. Maureen is also a spiritual medium, trying to make contact with her recently deceased twin brother in the parts of the film that resemble a haunted house film. This is part drama, part ghost story and part murder mystery. None of those terms, I think, really adequately describes this film. It's like Colossal. It is a little bit like Colossal. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult to describe film. I'm going to argue it's an even harder film to wrap your head around. I find that with Assayas' films in general. And I'll put it out there. That's something I like about his films. I used to dislike his films a lot, but Mm -hmm. I've really embraced him now. And I think this is right up there as one of his best. I sorely wish I'd seen the previous film, which I'm guessing you guys both, oh, both might Clouds have. Clouds of yeah. Sils Maria. Mm. Yes, I have seen it. Yeah, I love that as well. Yeah, uh, very much a partner film to this film. Yeah, I rather thought it might inform a reading of this one too, yep. given its first collaboration between Asaias and, and Stuart. And it, it too had an interesting dynamic at, at the heart of it, I believe, between the character Kristen Stewart played and the and it was Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche yes. played, yeah, the yeah. woman. Well, and, and Kristen Stewart is her. Kristen Stewart yeah. is her personal assistant. Yeah. in Clouds of Sils Maria. Yeah, yeah. so that yeah, they, these do sound like they're of a, a pair. Let's say mm. um, this is an intriguing film. There's a. <laughs> There's an awful lot of uh, uncanniness afoot here. It's the old dark house trope back with a, a vengeance. Um, naturally lit, or let's say not lit. Um, so when it is dark, it is supremely dark and, and eerie. Um, she's a twin. Twins are spooky. We know this. <laughs> she has a dead twin and the twin is young and they both have a congenital heart condition. Only she's still alive. He is presumably dead or in the afterlife. Is there an afterlife? Purgatory. There's, yeah, purgatory, limbo, <laughs> uh, those sorts of states. I mean, her, her lived li- life, I mean, the life she is living seems to be a kind of limbo state as well. She's a bit uh, uh, at a loss as to how she should be leading her life. She's in Paris simply because she thinks she needs to see this thing out and this thing being somehow trying to receive a message from her dead brother because they made a pact while they were alive that should one of them die, they'd let the other know <laughs> that yeah. they were somehow okay Oh, but it's not yeah. enough to have a running tap. That's not enough. No, no, no. <laughs> running water is not proof enough. <laughs> um, all of this this business tying in uh, spiritualism with uh, avant garde art is kind of curious. It reminded well, it's me specifically mm. abstraction. Yes, mm. specifically. Ab- yes, um, this particular artist who I did look to see whether she was real because mm. I'd never heard of her. I uh, was at Hilda F. Clint or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I had. I didn't look yeah. it up. Is is mm. she real? Seemingly, unless I mean, oh, okay. unless unthinkably somebody's made a Wikipedia entry that doesn't <laughs> tell the truth. No, I, I, oh I my say, god! Isaiah is big on that, referencing yeah. kind yeah, of really actual is. artists mm. and yeah. filmmakers and musicians from the past who maybe we don't know. Yeah, I was really intrigued yeah. by that because it instantly put me in mind of a. a considerably more avant-garde filmmaker of the current day whose work I adore, and that's Guy Madden, who in recent times, right in Paris where a lot of this action is situated, uh, he was installed in the Centre Pompidou conducting seances to uh, to somehow channel the spirits of uh, lost films and recreate them on the spot. And a lot of that wound up in his recent feature film, The Forbidden Room, which screened at MIFF the other year. And I love Madden so much and he, you know, love his play with all of that sort of film history. And Assayas is as big a cinephile as Madden, clearly, too. I love that there's a little bit of ectoplasm in this film. I know that <laughs> Madden was hugely into getting yeah. the, 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 the people he got to try to summon up these old, uh, these old film spirits. 
he had them all coated in ectoplasm for the occasion too. Oh. oh, to have been a fly on those walls in the Pompidou <laughs> when that was all happening. Anywho, a slight uh, diversion, um, <laughs> but it's all connected. There, there is something very cinematic about Assayas's uh, deployment of these old tropes. He's very knowing. He knows that as knowing as he is and as knowing as he can show himself to be, he can still get away with making an utterly enigmatic film that come the end of it, you're, you're not... You can't really just sort of explain it all away. It's a lovely, lovely mystery. Um, it was it was booed at Cannes, what? wasn't it? When it, I, I found well, that really surprising. Stuff. Was it? But they do that. It's just part of the stupid Cannes. Yeah, why this film though? Yeah. Why it doesn't seem like a boo worthy film, even was if you really? didn't like it? Yes, oh, yes. Well, boo back to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah boo boring Cannes yeah. audience. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was totally engrossed in this. Even this one passage that perhaps went on a bit long on board a train, which is really just the drama unfolding surrounding text messages from a mystery. I love that, yeah. though. I but love still, the way that Yes, I really out. dug that as yeah. well. I, because, you know, there's, there's actually a lot of smartphones and computers in this film. Yep. And it's something filmmakers have become a bit terrified of, like how do you show the fact that contemporary characters engage with devices so much? He does it This is so the best well. use of that I've seen. I agree. Yeah. I, I have personally, uh, I know it's something that's played out quite a bit now, um, the the text messages on the screen, not just showing a, a you know, a phone screen on camera, but actually putting the messages on the screen. I really don't like that Yeah, I'm that over process. that too. Yeah, yeah, I don't like it it's, at all. It's had its moment. Yeah. So I feel that uh, Asaius and even YouTube videos and things like that, he really incorporates them very, very well into the, the cinematic language. He did it in Clouds of Sils Maria as well. Um, and it, it just felt really natural. And that scene had the effect of when you're in a text message conversation or some sort of online social media exchange of times sort of disappearing. Mm. So it, it, it almost had a a feeling of a real time unfolding from Kristen Stewart's character Maureen going from Paris to London doing her thing in London and then literally coming back again and this just plays out over the top of it and being taunted as well that kind of cheeky flirtation across uh, text message. Well, I'm so sure we've all had that. Oh yes, um, <laughs> might be happening even while this show is on. I'll just put my phone over there for the moment. Um, put that away. Yeah. I'm, I'm just getting abusive messages from my uh, sister. You, yeah. It looks like you're getting far more interesting <laughs> messages. Yeah. As I uh, telegraphs early on in the film that uh, spiritualists have always been uh, have always worked with the the avant garde technology of the day, and so then yeah. that, I mean, it's sort of just letting you know. Or set, setting the scene for the, the, those sort of exchanges, mm. such that we we really think that maybe she is communicating with a spirit, even though it's coming through an iPhone, very clearly <laughs> yes. an iPhone. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it, it, he does milk that quite expertly. There is so much that even come the film's close is is still uh, not really explicable in the mystery. I, I, I do I do appreciate mm. someone who can really pull this off. That come come the end of the film, you don't feel cheated. No. You instead just feel maybe. I to see this again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not many directors who can do that. I mean, it's always been the forte of someone like David Lynch, but I think uh, Asayas can do it as well. Look, I, I, I've been wrestling... I find his films so hard to talk about because I, I find them so difficult to pin down, which is part of the thrill of them. But I think this is a film a bit like Clouds of Sils Maria about somebody trying to hang on to or preserve or find their identity after it's it's, it's threatened by, by something. Yeah. And I think in this film she's been so consumed with grief that he's threatening 
to take over her. Plus the fact that she's kind of this default, you know, shopper for this celebrity who's kind of living the boring part of this person's life. And 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 I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's an accident that she's buying these high end fashion items and at the same time communicating with the dead because that's the extreme of the material and the immaterial world. Yes, and that's exactly. what she's dabbling in to try to find some kind of identity for herself. And the other thing that Sayes is really good at is exploring the way characters have relationships with objects and, you know, whether it's bits of furniture like we saw in Summer Hours um, uh, or, or just personal nostalgic items that are around the house. I mean, Wes Anderson kind of has a fascination with these kind of still items as well but in a radically different way to Sayes. And in this film we get it with, with clothing, with, with fashion items. And I'm not somebody who has ever been able to really get their head around the appeal of fashion but in this film I completely shared her fetishised of these clothes and there's some amazingly highly charged sensual scenes yes. for this I thought so anyway where <laughs> she's trying on these clothes but she's not meant to be trying on because they belong to her boss and she gets very excited and kind of you know aroused by them and they're really was, powerful scenes some of that clothing was quite arousing clothing yeah. but I, it, it wasn't that I was being a dirty old man sitting there going for Christian Stewart it was more that <laughs> I just love the way they conveyed the sensuality of these items to her. And, I mean, her performance is stunning. I mean, she must have been so trusting of this director to deliver the performance she gives in this film. Oh, I mean, she, yes. she has a nervous energy as a rule anyway, I think, but it's, it's channeled perfectly in this film. I, there's any doubt about her abilities as an actor. I mean, he's another actor who constantly has to prove themselves despite having a great body of work behind them. If there's any doubt about her being a great actor, it, it should should be gone now after this film is viewed. Mm, I think um, looking, uh, seeing this as a continuation of Clouds of Sils Maria, um, you can see the way Asaias has... He just saw the the potential in Stuart. I mean, when I say potential, she was fully there in Clouds of Sils Maria as well. But she just can fill the screen and do not much, really, or seemingly not much. She just has an amazing screen presence. And I think that in everything I've seen her in, I think she's actually the most comfortable in her own skin in those two these two movies and she plays mu- very much more the secondary character it's the Sils Maria is around the the character of Juliette Binoche so I think Isaias saw the opportunity here to create something for her but once again playing on that idea of her being the uh, assistant to someone much more famous than her although she is the one that's the focus in personal shopper and and the the woman that she is, is she a model I never really got was she model actress sort of cross media yeah. personality socialite, socialite. Is it deliberately ambiguous i think it is and she dabbles in good causes especially uh primate, primate causes, causes. Seemingly. yeah that's yes. right yeah she's mm. a bit of a um yeah a sort of a multimedia just a celebrity celebrity mm. culture and uh she, her character unlike juliette binoche's is in sils maria is um not a particularly nice person and and he, he deliberately um Asaias takes the the focus away from her so it is all about um Kristen Stewart um or as Maureen but as you said Thomas that idea of that interaction with objects I found it really interesting in this film that she was handling such expensive objects like jewellery from Cartier and she just kind of throws these little bags over her shoulder and jumps on a scooter and then when she tries on the clothing she just kind of pulls off her jeans and kicks them and sort of stomps on them as she gets out of them. There was just something about the way she interacted with everything that was so naturalistic but 
then so fascinating. I can't, I'm like I, I'm like you. I can't he, say it's what it's exactly how he does that. is. He, yeah, he, his frames are so incredibly cinematic. Yeah, and I, I was. I was thinking about maybe why when I was watching this film and I think he, he uses literally frames really well. He uses mm. the architecture of space in a way that really nicely frames the film and, and, and gives it a kind of sense of grandiosity or something. So he often shoots through doorways or through windows or through perfectly aligned hallways and I think it's, <laughs> you know, some people like to put the black bars at the top and the bottom of their, their little videos to make them look more cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> it's him doing that on a much more grand, a skillful scale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So uh, I guess that's uh, three thumbs up. Um, six. Six. How, how many do we have between us? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and Faith has lent us another couple as well. Yeah, so yeah, our our podcast the- editor, Faith, who saw the film with me, I believe, was also a huge fan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about Personal Shopper here on Plato's Cave. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple We are going to talk about denial in just a moment here on Plato's Cave, but I, th- I just wanted to be very indulgent and recognise the fact that it's the 30th anniversary of With Norlin I. I don't know about <laughs> you, but your my Facebook feed has been filled with people quoting this glorious film, which is one of the most melancholic comedies ever made, and it gets better every time I watch it. Uh, so just a tip of the hat. It's, it, I, sh- I forgot to mention... 30 years, did 30 you say? 30 years, yeah. Jesus. There's a, a nice uh, piece on the BFI's website at the moment where they revisit a lot of the shooting locations and see what's become of those speaking of sort of melancholic oh uh, really yeah yeah yeah. the bfi love doing i mean sorry bbc i should say love doing that kind of thing um but the bfi as well Mm -hmm. on their website fantastic this is the film that launched the career of richard e grant and should have launched the career of paul mcgann who is still somebody who uh, us nerdy doctor who fans know who he is but um (laughs) he still hasn't had the career i think he deserves but lovely film hi this is richard e grant and you're listening to triple r Cheers and chin chin. Before we go any further with the show, though, I must say it's April Amnesty here on 3 Triple R. I forgot to mention it last week. We all forgot. Let me pass the blame around. <laughs> but but April, <laughs> April Amnesty is a really good time to, to resubscribe if you've let, left your membership lapse. It happens to the best of us. I actually thought you remembered. I'm sure you, we did a little spiel on it, didn't we? Last we week? Did. I thought we yeah. did it two weeks ago. We did it the week oh, before. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, no, we did do it last week. Let's just this tell is... everyone that. <laughs> I love that we're having this conversation as part of our pitch for people to subscribe. Um, it's... Where was I? Yeah, it's easy to let your membership lapse. It is so important, though, to become a Triple R subscriber. So this is a really good time just to give a friendly nudge that freeloading, you know, partner or friend or, or family member or, or, or pet, or, pet. Or, or person who maybe did pledge during the Radiothon and haven't coughed up the cash yet, just give them that nudge to say, come on, let's do it. And they don't need to feel ashamed. Don't, there is no shame no here, shame. no hard feelings. Whenever you become a subscriber, we love you. Yeah, this and is sometimes, a really good time. sometimes the credit card goes over the limit, so if they're all back on track... It's the time. Exactly. So please do that. Uh, you can go to the Triple R website or call 93881027 during office hours. All right. Let's talk about the final film for the night. Denial is the based on a true story adaptation of the book History on Trial, My Day in Court with a Holocaust Denier by Deborah Lipstadt, who is played in the film by Rachel Weiss. Lipstadt was, and still is, a Holocaust scholar, and in 1996 she was sued for libel by Holocaust denier David Irving for accusing him of being a Holocaust denialist. 
Irving is played in the film by Timothy Spall. Denial is essentially a courtroom drama as most of the events depicted are connected to the trial which began in 2000. Irving represented himself during the trial while Lipstadt assembled a large legal team that included barrister Richard Rampton, who in the film is played by Tom Wilkinson. Denial is directed by Mick Jackson, whose previous film credits as director include Volcano, The Bodyguard and L.A. Story. L.A. Story. I know. What a what an interesting uh, repertoire, let's it's, say. It's written... This makes more sense. It is yeah. written by David Hare, who also wrote the film adaptations of The Reader and The Hours. What do we think of Denial? It does feel like a film of the times. It, mm, it does, in, in this post-truth time that we find ourselves allegedly living in (laughs) purportedly i mean is anything real anymore i don't know it's just uh yeah i mean it is of the times it's also such a bbc film i'm sure we'll come to the truthiness and all of that business before long but i'd say this was such a bbc film so such of a tradition of sort of quality british thesping with an american or two in there if need be but really it's about the brits and 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 holding court so to speak um, you know, and in a courtroom dis- drama. That discrepancy this- between mm. the British and the Americans, which, yes. you know, they love playing out in cinema, don't they? The, you know, the upper crust British versus and the And all their grandstanding. Yeah, yeah. Actually, this did highlight something I didn't quite know about the difference between British and American law, about the, uh, on whom the onus is to prove uh, oneself in the right or wrong. Uh, the what, what is the whole business? Presumed guilty until innocent is but, the um, domain of the... Indeed. English, yeah. they're innocent until proven guilty. In this, you, know, you have to prove if somebody takes a. <laughs> how does this work again? No. Normally, you're innocent and, unless until proven guilty. When yes. in libel cases, yes. according to this film, yes. it's on the accused to defend themselves. According yes. to this film, do you think that was taking liberties even yeah. then? I can't have been. So yeah, no. that's a hell of a fictionalisation. Is that the same here? That's what I'd like to know. I don't no. know much about libel courses. Well, let's say something we... litigious now and find yeah. out. <laughs> I know how not Probably to say things on radio that can get yeah. you sued for defamation. I've, yeah. I've done that training, but I, I don't know about libel in this case. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Timothy Spall does play David Irving as a, a quite compelling character. I mean, Timothy Spall's a great character actor. Mm. We do expect good performances from him routinely, but um, the film does overstress the fact that Irving was supposed to be some sort of charismatic uh, speaker and, and I didn't actually find him exactly charismatic I just found him sort of oleaginous and creepy but then he's a holocaust denier how did anyone ever fall under his spell the guy's a fruitcake don't sue me <laughs> well you can't it's been proven in court well yeah I, I, the problem I had with this film is I liked and I was fascinated in the issues discussed but the film itself has no drama because no. they pretty much kick Irving but from day one. I mean, I think there's this kind of false bit where he gets sort of feels like he gets the upper hand just because the day finishes on a high note for him. But there's no actual drama in the sense that there's never really any doubt that, you know, he's going to get crushed because, yeah. um, you know, he, he has repugnant views which are very easy to, to obliterate out of the stratosphere. Um, I was fascinated with the way he was described because it rang true with my limited encounter with extreme right-wing fascists, whether it's mainly through bumping into these these toads online, is this idea of him seeing himself as a rebel and a maverick and an outsider, but he also desperately wanted to be part of the system and embraced mm. by the mainstream. And that summed up pretty much every kind of fascist, neo-Nazi person I've ever had the misfortune to, to stumble across. There's a ridiculous contradiction where they see themselves as, yeah, rebels, but they just want to be loved um and i I quite like 
that kind of exposing of of his of you know of his bullshit, and that was nice. Um, the other really curious thing I found about this film is very early in the case, you know, Deborah Lipstadt is told. For us to win, we don't want you on the stand and we don't want Holocaust survivors on the stand. And, and, and she gets very much mansplained about how the legal case totally. is going yeah. to work. And I was sort of saying, well, how is the film going to grapple with this? And I kind of had lots of moments where she argued it with them but eventually conceded, well, if that's going to be the legal strategy that you experts believe is the right thing to do, then we'll go with that. And it turned out to be true, correct. And the other thing they do is they kind of invent this Holocaust survivor character who, who turns up at the courthouse and sort of pulls her up every now and then to say, why aren't I being put on the stand representing every Holocaust deny it and I think the film gets very much tangled in its own desperate attempt to kind of want to address these issues but it can't because the the, the strategy which sounded like she was mansplained out of her own case is what won because the legal experts were legal experts yeah yeah and men I actually found... um, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It was overcompensating for the embarrassing reality of how it played out. Yeah, yeah. I was... Supposedly embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I found um, in uh, in the cinema watching this, I felt kind of like... Yeah, they're right, they're right. No, don't put... This isn't the Holocaust on trial. Don't give him that fuel. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. This is a... You know, this is fact. Don't try and, you know, defend it because in the defensiveness, then it gives power to his uh, his argument. But I did feel uh, there's something about it that you could go, oh, God, Timothy Spall, who is fantastic. Tom Wilkinson, who I thought was particularly fantastic in it. But Timothy Spall, um, you could... He, he felt a little monstrous, a little exaggerated, and I think a lot of people could feel, oh, they just, you know, made him seem incredibly monstrous just to hammer home that point. But I don't know whether anyone... Has anyone seen clips of David Irving speak or witnessed David Irving speak? Yes no, I haven't no? actually. I probably should have looked that okay. up. I just really didn't want to. No, no. Good, good reasoning. I, I've seen him um, clips of him speak before and he is actually very much like that character. So mm-hmm. you might watch it and feel that it's over-exaggerated, but it's not. That is actually what David Irving is like. Um in general, though, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I did enjoy the film. I think that it probably um, needed to bring in that little beast. It was kind of like a beast story, her wanting her, the emotional American, her being the Jew as well, who was, you know, come from the inside, you know, from a very emotional point of view and that unemotional British uh, council, although... They were more emotional than she believed, but, you know, they, they, in order to get the job done, they seemed very unemotional. But I thought that rub worked really well. It actually did suck, sucker me in there, even though I knew what it was doing. Yes, she was mm. totally mansplained and Gentile-splained. That's a bit of, a, <laughs> bit of an awkward coinage. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, well, they kind of set her up as being, what did she talk about, Deborah being, her name Deborah being that defender of the people uh, or something like role. that. A saviour role. Yeah, she was the saviour but not the saviour because she was kind of just 
excluded from her own narrative, her own victory, even though, yeah, you know, it's all a bit... But that, that's the awkward thing. It, it was is based very on awkward. real yeah. events that yeah. turned out to probably be the right strategy. Yes, yes. But even yeah. in the closing credits, again, the benefits of watching closing credits, there's the usual disclaimer <laughs> was of uh, Alex, certain... Alex uh, thanked? No, no, Alex <laughs> was at this time. But there was the usual, this is based on true events, and mm. but uh, in the interests of, what do they usually say, in condensation or something like that, certain characters and events may have been... Uh, conflated or such as that. It's in the interests of dramatisation. And so, I mean, is any of this true? Any of it, I mean, probably most of it, but liberties mm-hmm. have been taken. Mind you, there was something very, very actual about the Auschwitz footage. They did go there and they did shoot footage on the premises and that gave me the heebie-jeebies because, as well, it should. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that's always chilling, that sort of thing. I, I mean, I've been to one of the concentration camps. I mean, maybe some of us have as well. I, I visited Dachau when I was in Germany and it, it is... Something I think is really important for people to do, actually, to just to really confront the overwhelming horror of what happened and, by God, don't forget it. And, and I actually found the scenes of that in the film quite Im- impressive. And that's where it was um, a little bit more interesting when you had sort of the, the kind of rational legal mind clashing with her more emotional response. Those scenes for me re- worked really, really well and I thought they were done with a lot of in- integrity and power. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, it was interesting too to have the the denier argument being presented and these stories. I mean, what was his his argument was that Jews or the 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 deaths of Jewish people was just casualties of war, wasn't it? It wasn't appointed. And that Hitler attack. never really gave the order or it didn't happen. I mean, that, that was part of the problem they showed us in the film. He he, he changed his position so many times as well. Yeah. And one of his defenses was he just made an accident that he didn't willingly put out this false information. Yeah, and the, yeah. the the idea that the um, the actual gas chambers were used to what was it like some sort of body cleansing or as yeah, in the the, the, the delousing I think it was yeah, yeah. oh yeah. delousing mm. that's right and also the uh, cadavers you know before you know they buried them and, and it's just hearing this and uh, and even you know, knowing people who have who were Holocaust survivors it's just so infuriating that's the thing about the film just to hear this person you know David Irving does is walking around you know especially it's pertinent after Sean Spicer made his huge gaffe on Mm -hmm. you know um, who I don't believe is a Holocaust denier I just think he's an idiot but it was quite perfect very fine (laughs) (laughs) but just perfect timing to see this this movie and also the defensive and and this is also ties into this whole thing about Trump as as we said earlier this year probably every film we can tie into Donald Trump some way that this that maybe if Irving actually believed, genuinely believed what he was saying, then does that make him guilty or not? Does that make him a liar? Yeah. yeah. And and philosophical that's, question. Yes, yes, yes. That is an interesting question. And the film, to its credit, I think presents a lot of these interesting questions about the nature of what does free speech cover and what are the limitations of, of free speech. Uh, I always find it mm. ironic where people defending free speech sue somebody for defamation or libel. I, I just think you, you really haven't thought about the irony yes, here. Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> it's incredible. But this, I, I think this actual story was just essentially a bit undramatic because it was almost so... I mean, the way the film presents it is there was... I, I never got any sense that he was going to... he was going to get away with this. 
But equally, that had never changed his ways. Denialists don't suddenly come to that uh, oh, boy, that no. moment yeah. where they go, yeah. oh, right, mm. oh, silly me. I've been <laughs> yeah. such a fool and, and adopt the contrary position, much as we probably sadly needn't expect any climate change denialists in Australia yeah. uh, to change their agenda. Or, or, I'm glad uh, that got a shout out at the end of the film where she talked about, you know, all these untruths yes. and she mentioned yes. you know, ice the ice caps are melting, yep. melting, I thought, yeah, mm, because mm. this denialism is... Ah, yeah. <laughs> I think th- th- this question of do you have the right to tell blatant lies and historical or scientific untruths, and mm. I'm, I'm glad a sort of fairly diver- digestible piece of cinema is out there totally saying... Totally mainstream. Yeah, very mainstream. Very BBC. Very it's BBC. An e- it's saying, an no, easy no, watch. You, you can't... You, yeah, yeah, it's an easy watch. This is not freedom of speech. Yeah. It's meant for people to watch. And as for the fact... It was based on her book as well, wasn't it? As yes. in she... Not the book that she was up for defamation, but the book that she wrote based on this case. As a result, Yeah. yeah. There you go. Three monsters we discussed. Three monsters. <laughs> we looked at Colossal. That's on limited release, courtesy of Transmission Films. We looked at Personal Shopper. is also on limited release. That one is courtesy of Rialto Distribution. And Denial is on general release, courtesy of Entertainment One Film. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.